Welcome to the Grazing Podcast for Robertson Sheetham Farmers Co-op. My name is Clint, and I will be your host as we record live from our beautiful Springfield, Tennessee location inside our podcast studio. Robertson Cheatham is a member-owned farm supply cooperative. You can learn more about us on our website, yourfarmerscoop.com, in addition to our Facebook and Instagram pages. Welcome back to the Grazing Podcast for Robertson Cheatham Farmers Co-op, and Happy New Year, by the way. Happy 2024. You know, we've uh, we've been we've been doing this podcast for, oh, little over two years now we try to put an episode out every week I think we've done upwards of like 120 now and I got to thinking you know I I like having guests on here I like hearing about other people learning about you know what their life is or their business and gleaning wisdom from them and um, I got to thinking you know I've never I've never done one of these by myself before because to be honest, I don't really want to do one by myself because I don't want to have to ramble on for 30 minutes. And if I did, golly, what would I what would I talk about for 30 minutes? Because I can I don't know if I can talk for 30 minutes. So, you know, I was sitting down thinking of ideas, and I, I think I came up with with an idea to where, you know, this this is relevant information that I could speak on for 30 minutes. And what I'm talking about is mistakes that I've made uh, when it comes to uh, farming and trying to manage a business. And, uh, you know, because this this is an an ag type um, co-op or an ag business. So I thought to myself, you know, I I manage a a cow-calf operation. I've been doing it for a couple years now as far as uh, once I took over the management. And um, I've realized I've I've screwed up several things that I didn't see coming. And going into it had a lot of confidence because I had experience going into it. But when you, <laughs> when you get into a management position and you, you are making the day-to-day decisions, God, you, don't really, you, you just don't realize that, you know what, I'm not as smart as what I think I, what I, think I am. Um, <laughs> so it's been, it's been humbling at times. And <coughs> excuse me, when I've... When I've um, messed up in something I didn't see coming, I always try to write it down because, you know, you don't want to make the same mistake twice if you can help it. So it's helpful for me to write that down. And I thought I'd go through some of these things to share with you because, you know, who who knows, this could be helpful to you. You could be a cow-calf producer and say, you know what, I've been struggling with that or maybe that's something I can be thoughtful about. So maybe you won't make these mistakes. So I kind of wanted to go down through this list and um, speak on some of these things. So the way, you know, a cow-calf operation, that um, tip, you, you have a herd of cows, and the objective is to get your cows bred. Where they have a calf, they, they birth a calf every year, uh, you wean it off and, and sell the calf. So, you know, that happens once a year, or, or in the perfect world it happens once a year. Um, but in the meantime, you know, you've got to, you've got to manage your cows. You've got to manage their nutrition and and that comes through the form of pasture, hay, mineral supplementation, feed, um, you know, their overall health. That's, that's one of the, the big management, um, factors that you, you must consider on a daily basis. So, 
<laughs> the first one that, that I wrote down here, typically in, um, you know, in, in middle Tennessee where we are, if, if you have a cow-calf operation, you're going to have to feed hay at some point during the winter. <coughs> Excuse me. A lot of people, you know, you can stockpile pasture, but as far as making it through January, February, into March, more than likely you're going to have to feed hay at some point. And um, my first lesson that I learned was feed hay longer than you think you should. And what I mean by that is, when your pasture starts to green up come late March into the 1st of April, don't get overly excited and turn your cows in on it when it greens up because it looks good and it looks very enticing to do that. But uh, you are doing yourself a disservice if you do that. And what I mean is if, if you um, – a lot of times in the, in the wintertime when people feed hay, they feed hay in a sacrifice pasture and the rest of their pastures they allow to you know recover from the last grazing period where they can grow up uh, where the grass can grow up and come at least by the end of April you've got grass ready to graze there but into March 1st of April when it greens up if you get overly anxious and you go ahead and turn them in on it and they nip it down to the ground it's going to have a hard time recovering <clears throat> and that's where I really screwed up my first year. And I was <laughs> I was trying not to do that, but I somehow did it anyway. I, I I said, well, you know, I'll get to the get to the first of April and it'll be all right. I'll go ahead and start grazing. And I did that. I you know, I felt pretty good about it and I had a, a, a grazing consultant come out and look at what I was doing and went, you know, <laughs> after the tour concluded, he said, Well, you you really overgrazed. I was thinking, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I, by gosh, I've been managed. I'm, I know exactly what I'm doing. Come to find out, I don't really. I'm not as smart as what I think I am. Uh, he, you know, he laid out these points. He said, "This grass, you've you've grazed it too early, down too far, and it's going to have a hard time recovering." So, what you need to do to try to minimize the damage that you've done, put them back in your sacrifice paddock. And by this point, it was. Probably April the twentieth or April twenty first. It's getting towards the end of April. <coughs> Excuse me. He said, you know, put them back in your sacrifice paddock and feed hay to them for probably a week, which I was terribly uncomfortable with because by that point it's you know it's getting late April. I don't want to start feeding hay again, but I'm going to take this guy on his word. And I'm going to listen to him. So skeptically, I put him back in it and fed hay for at least another week. And when I did that, I took them back off that pasture. It really recovered much, much better than what I thought it would have. Where if I wouldn't have done that, it would have, it would have had a hard time recovering because once you overgrazing, I, I believe is one of the worst things that you can do because it, when you snip it off at the ground over and over and over, eventually it'll, it'll kill the plant eventually, but it just, it takes a very long time to recover to where it should be before you start grazing it again. So, you know, that was my first hard lesson that I learned. Feed hay in the winter going into the spring a little bit longer than what you're comfortable with because your grass 
will perform much, much better if you do that. So that was kind of the first thing I wrote down. It was feed hay longer than what you think you should. Feed it into mid to late April if you have to because your grass will perform much, much better. Um, second thing I wrote down on my list was start hay as far as putting up hay, you know, cutting, raking, rolling hay. Start it as quick as you can and finish up as quick as you can. Now, there's a a couple of different schools of thought on this. And, you know, I don't think either one is right or wrong. But a lot of people believe in quantity over quality. Some people start cutting hay mid to late June because they're going to make much, much more hay than what they would have in mid-May if they would have started cutting. The downside to that is your quality suffers because if you're talking about <coughs> excuse me, orchard grass and fescue, um, it's going to be overripe by then. And it's it starts going backwards. And, and again, it's going to make more, but the nutrition standpoint, from a nutritional standpoint, it's not going to be nearly as high. So my recommendation, you know, if uh, if you can get a window as far as weather cooperating mid-May, well, really, the, you know, the first of May through, you know, the, the middle of May, you can make some really high-quality hay out of just normal fescue and orchard grass if you can get it in the boot stage uh, for the, the, the growth of the grass. The issue with that is um, it's just not going to make as much, but what you do make, it's going to be high-quality stuff. So if you're raising replacement heifers or that kind of thing, young cattle – it's really good to have uh, some hay set aside that is uh, high quality, I, I believe. <coughs> and now, also on that same school of thought, finishing up as quick as you can because, in, of course, this is just common knowledge. But if you ha- depending on what your hay situation, if you if you put up your own hay, if you take if you cut it off your own farm, and you're not having to haul your equipment up and down the road. And, and truck the hay up and down the road, then you can probably get done a lot faster. In my case, we we cut hay off of a lot of our neighbors' um, properties and and fields, and um, we got to haul a lot of equipment around. Got to truck the hay up and down the road, and it's it's very time consuming. <coughs> so by the time we're almost done, you know, at that point, I need to be bush hogging. I need to be spraying some. I need to be cleaning out fence rows. I've got some fencing I got to do. Oh, it's just no shortage of things. So, you know, what I, the next thing I wrote down was just start and finish hay as quick as you can on both ends. Now, along that same school of thought, this was a really interesting kind of experiment I did my first year as far as the, the management side. So we're talking about um, 20... Oh, was it 2020, 2022, spring of 2022. So obviously we, we all know about inflation. Everything is, is higher nowadays, but, um, you know, inputs in ag have also been extremely high. So fertilizer in particular, oh, it was as far as record breaking prices, as far as them being expensive, you know, it was the most expensive year for fertilizer, um, so I, I really had to be 
thoughtful about how I wanted to fertilize because if you're if you're cutting hay off a field, you have to fertilize. I mean, there's if you don't if you if you take and take and take and take and take the hay off of it year after year, eventually you're gonna have nothing but broom sage. So as far as from a fertility standpoint, you know, you're, if you manage your pastures correctly and you don't overgraze and you get your your um, your your P and K levels and your pH where it needs to be, and you manage it correctly, you don't have to depend on fertilizers much. But when it comes to your hay ground, where you're cutting that hay and and taking it physically off of the field, you, you got to fertilize. You just you have to. So I knew I had to fertilize, but I've got to be frugal with it because you know most of us are on a budget. So that first year, I knew that out of potassium and phosphorus as far as taking hay away it when you remove the hay it sucks out potash which is potassium much much more than uh, phosphorus so I said I'm you know I'm gonna make sure I put a heavy dose of potash um then my phosphorus levels were good and yeah I'm not gonna put any nitrogen I'm just gonna put straight potash to really compensate for that that hay removal uh, and I, you know, I, I, I knew roughly in the past, as far as yield, what my, what these fields produced when, when adding uh, nitrogen, but I was interested to see, you know, when I don't add any nitrogen, just potash, how much it's going to cut the yield back, but how much are we talking about? How drastic is it? And, uh, you know, got the potash, spread it. As soon as started cutting the fields and rolling it up, I saw immediately and, and consistently probably across 10 different properties when not when, when you when I didn't apply the nitrogen compared to the years that I did, it cut the yield by 50 percent. So, you know, one field in particular made about 60 rolls. If you put 50 units of nitrogen, uh, the next year put no nitrogen, it made right around 30 rolls. So it cut the yield by 50%, which was I knew it was going to cut it, but I didn't realize it would be that much. I, you know, I, I figured it might cut it by 30%. So, you know, I, I wrote down on here, you can't really afford not to fertilize, especially when it comes to your hay fields. And especially if you're doing two, if you're doing a spring cutting and a fall cutting, I mean, you just, you just have to have it. Um, truly. So, you know, I, that was kind of an interesting experiment to do because it taught me if you're depending on a certain amount of rolls that you know you have to have to get through the winter, you, you need to apply nitrogen. You need to apply nitrogen, potash, and phosphorus, but <laughs> when you don't put that nitrogen, <coughs> it really kills the yield. Um, so that was that was an interesting lesson to learn. Um Next thing on here, and this isn't really a mistake that I've made necessarily, but it's something I see a lot of other people doing that I don't, I don't really understand. And it's probably one of those deals where uh, it's. The, have you ever heard the story about the uh, the uh, the mom was getting ready to cook a ham for Christmas or some sort of holiday? And before she put the ham in the oven, she cuts the end of the ham off. And her daughter asked her, she's like, Mama, why do you do that? And she's like, you know, I don't know. 
your your grandmother used to do that. Um, so I just, you know, I just following what's what I always saw her do. You'll have to go ask her. So the young daughter, granddaughter goes and asks her grandmother, hey, why do you cut the end of the ham off? And the grandmother tells her, well, back when when I was younger, uh, the pans, they the, you couldn't fit the ham in them. So you uh, the ham was too big, so you had to cut the ends off way back. But nowadays, you know, you got pans where you don't, it fits perfectly. So uh, what I'm saying is, you know, these traditions that we follow, uh, the reason it started long ago, that might be, you know, out of, out of date, um, outdated, I guess. So I'm talking about hay production in particular. And what, what I'm talking about is tethering. So a tether, you know, after you go in and cut your hay, um, the tether can be used to make the hay cure out quicker. If it's got moisture in it, it allows it to dry out. So, for example, if you've uh, if you've cut your hay and you've got it in a windrow, getting ready to roll it, and a, a thunderstorm comes up and dumps an inch of hay on it, an inch of rain on your hay, that windrow it's not going to dry out. So you got to get in there with a tether and bust it back apart for it to dry out. Um, it, it very useful. Or if you have a field that is very shaded doesn't get a lot of sunlight on it and you can't really depend on the sunlight to fully cure it. You can get in there, tether it and it, it can make a big difference. Or if you've got a field of, you know, straight clover where it just won't, it just won't cure out like grass. You can get in there, tether it. It makes a big difference. But what I've noticed is a lot of people I see cutting hay, they'll cut hay in a field in the middle of June that wasn't fertilized and it's just a very thin, thin, thin stand of fescue and they cut it and then they're out there tethering it the next day. It's just, it's a waste of diesel fuel and it's wear and tear on your equipment because you don't, you don't have to tether that. It's going to dry out. You, that hot, you let two hot 12 o'clock sunshine down on it and it, it's going to cure out. You know, a tether is, there are very uh, particular instances where you need a tether for sure, but if you have a field, even if you fertilized it and it's it's a, you know a good thick stand in there, if you let two or maybe even three twelve o'clock hot summer sun shine down on it, it's going to cure. But when you're out there tethering it after four days after it's been cut, it's just straw at that point. So, you know, I would, I would recommend for people to be thoughtful about that. Is this a situation in which I need to, to be using my tether? Um, moving down the list here, you know, when you have livestock, obviously injuries are, are going to occur, but you want to minimize that the best you can through, you know, certain management, nutrition or they get fresh water mineral that kind of thing lowering their stress levels but when you're talking about um, bulls you know if you're a cow calf producer you got to get the cows bred so you got to have a bull to do that so bulls um, you know if you have a defined breeding season and what I mean by that is you're trying to have your calf crop born say in the spring the spring and the fall, but you don't want any born in the summer or the dead of winter. You put the bulls in in a particular time of the year. So say you put them in June the 1st 
they should start begin if if a cow is bred June the first, she should have her calf right around the first of of May. Or not I'm, not May, March. The first of March, give or take a few days. Almost a nine month gestation. Uh, but the the time that they're not in with the cows, you have to put them in a pasture, you know, away from the cows because you don't want them breeding. You don't want them breeding cows out of season. Now, when you do that, they're gonna fight because that <laughs> that's what they do. They gotta they gotta arrange their pecking order, and uh, <laughs> it's just kind of one of them things that uh, when they fight, you just kind of. Grit your teeth and wince and think, oh God, I hope I hope they don't get hurt. And um, it seems like most of the time, you know, you can get away. You might have one come up limping, but they'll get over it. But sometimes you're not so lucky. Sometimes they'll break a leg or they'll tear their they'll tear ligaments in their leg and it may in their back leg and it makes them lame, where they can't be used again. So if you go out and buy. <clears throat> a high dollar bull say you buy a ten thousand dollar bull um and he gets to fighting with another one and, and breaks a back leg and can't breathe and that's it's a sickening feeling when that happens so what i've learned and i had this happen the first year uh had a really really nice horn hereford bull really really good animal uh put him back in with put all i think it was four or five bulls in together after the breeding season, and uh, he hurt one of his back legs, and he never recovered from it. So he had to be sold. So it, you know, it's a sickening thing when that happens. But after that, I said I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do something a little bit different to minimize the chances of that happening. So instead of putting four or five in a pasture together, I'd break them up in sets of two, and I'd put them. You know, they'd be in a, the same farm together, but they'd be in different fields separated by electric fence. Now, you couldn't just use one strand of wire to separate them or two strands of hot wire. You'd have to use uh, a strand and then, or two strands, whatever you want to use, and then about, I don't know, five or six, seven, eight feet, run another strand where they can't get, where they can't get together and touch noses. Because once they touch noses, they're going to go through a fence fighting. So if you could put them in pairs, now obviously the pairs are going to fight. But I've I've heard people say what happens is, you know, you could have a pair fighting, and they can certainly get hurt that way, but what will happen if you have a pair head-to-head fighting, if you've got a third bull in there, he can come up and hit one from the side, and if their leg is planted in the ground and it gets hit from the side, that's when you can have a major injury occur. So putting them in pairs and uh, been doing that the past two years. And it's like I said, the pairs will fight, but as long as there wasn't a third one in there, you know, Lord willing, I haven't had any other major injuries. Um, so just trying to minimize that the best that I could, because losing that bull, uh, it was uh, really a sickening feeling. Now, if you've got a young bull, say a, a two year old, you can put him in there with some mature bulls and they're not going to fight. They know he's, he's a, he's a youngster and he's not really a threat. So you, you can get away with that. But if you've got three or four, you know, mature four, five, six-year-old bulls and you put them together, they're going to fight. And you just hope and pray for the best. They're not going to get hurt. But if, you, if you're really serious about minimizing the chance of injury, my suggestion is putting them in pairs, um, not putting them all in together in the same field. 
Uh, <laughs> and you know, moving down the list here, realize that you don't know anything because I went into this, you know, confident. I've got experience. By gosh, I've been around it my whole life. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly what I'm doing. I might make some mistakes here. There. By gosh, I, I'm not going to be surprised at anything. I know. I know what's going on. Come to find out, you, you don't know nothing. <laughs> That's what I told you. don't know nothing. Because there was so many times, you know, things would happen that I'd say, I can't believe that that happened. You know, there's one, in, one uh, instance in particular that happened last year. Um, if you have um, if you have some older calves out in the pasture, and what I what I mean by that is specifically calves that are uh, four or five months old. You know, they're still nursing off their mothers, but they're just like teenagers. They like to be mischievous. They like to get out and roam and, and play. And uh, you can have a good fence. You can have a strong, depending on how docile your cattle are. And if they're broke to electric wire, you know, you can keep your cattle in with a single strand of electric fence. Truly, you, you can. Um, but these younger calves, you know, you can have a stout. Say you got some uh, fencing area by a creek or in the woods and you only got two strands up. But it's, it's stout enough to keep these cows in. But these little calves are going to get out and roll. So I had that problem last year. They were getting on a neighboring property. And, you know, the good thing about it, they're going to come back because they're nursing their mothers. But they do like to get out and be mischievous. But if they're not, I, I want them to stay on the property. You know, they're not necessarily going to hurt anything. But I just don't like the thought of them being on someone else's property. So <coughs> had one area, they just kept getting out and kept getting out. And it was like a stout three strands of wire going through the woods and then there was a bluff a very very steep uh bluff rock facing so i said well i'll get in there and i'm gonna put five strands up tight which that's what i did and uh got on top of the bluff put another five strands up and i said well they ain't gonna go through that and i you know place t-posts every five to six feet i mean it's tight and, uh, you know, two or three days went by and they weren't getting out. And then, you know, four or five days went by and then I noticed some, when I'd count them, I noticed I had some missing. So I'd go up there and look and sure enough, they'd, they'd gotten through it. And I'm thinking, how, how did they do that? That don't make any sense. So, you know, go and examine the fence and you look for sign. Sometimes, you know, there could be a, if they squeeze to a fence, they might loosen a wire or you might see some hair on the fence, or uh, you know, if it's wet outside, you can see where they've where their where their feet were. They sunk up, maybe some footprints, but couldn't find any sign of where they'd gotten out. But in the middle, like I told you, there was this bluff there, and it was steep. I mean, steep, very steep. And there was one area where it was a it was a boulder, and shoot, it was probably five or six feet tall and it was it was vertical man just just about vertical it may have had a little bit of a, s a slope to it but uh there was no way to fence that because there was no it was all it was solid rock and it would there was just really no way to fence it and but i didn't worry about it i said they they're not going to climb up that they're just not going to do it 
so once once I went and examined the fence, I said they didn't get it. I I can't see where they got at. I'm gonna go over here and look at this bluff where I couldn't fence. Just you know, just to see. I guess I don't think they went through it, but sure enough, I got over there and I could see the marks on this rock where their hooves had climbed up it and scraped the moss off, and I saw the scrape marks, just like a mountain goat. They had, they had climbed up it, and I I was shocked. I, I could not believe it. I, I said I would have. I'd bet you a million dollars they're not gonna they're not gonna climb up that. But sure enough, they did, and uh, you know that was one of those moments where I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know nothing. I've got some knowledge and experience, but I'm just not as, <laughs> I'm not as, uh, I shouldn't be this confident. My confidence really means nothing. So, it, long story, you know, long story short, I ended up putting a panel in there. Uh, where they're climbing up, where they climbed up that rock and that a metal uh, kind of gate panel, and that solved it. But man, it was very humbling when I saw those hoof marks going up this. And I ain't kidding; it was a six foot rock facing that uh, a human I, I couldn't climb up it. And these things, like a mountain goat you'd see out in, in you know Montana, climbed up it, and it just it blew me away. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> what, what also goes along with that is don't never underestimate cattle cause they will surprise you. And, um, I guess kind of the last thing on my list, uh, that I, that I wanted to talk about was, and this could be, <laughs> this may be a little bit more common than what I think, but this is one of those things that I, I cannot learn my lesson from it. I continue to make this mistake and it's probably just laziness, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, for example, if uh, <laughs> shutting gates is what I'm talking about. <laughs> for example, if if there's um, if your cows are in one paddock and you got to go to the next paddock to, I don't know, look at something, work on a fence or whatever. When you go through the gate, shut the gate behind you is what you should do. Now, my line of thinking is, ah, I'm just going to be over here two minutes. It'll be all right. It ain't going to come through. Ain't gonna come through. They're over there eating. They're content. They're gonna be fine. And sure enough, I'll go through it, and I'll just you know I gamble. I'll say they're not gonna come over here. And one minute goes by, and I look down there, and here comes the whole herd flooding through the gate. And I've done this. I don't. I don't know how many times. And for the for the life of me, I cannot learn my lesson from it. Now, it, now I'm, I'm not talking about gates where if you're on a main road, you have to shut those gates. I just mean if you're internally in your farm and you're thinking i don't really want to get out of this truck right now to shut it i'm only gonna be over here for two minutes it'll be all right they ain't gonna come over better safe than sorry always shut the gate because generally they <laughs> there's one cow that'll recognize it that you left the gate open and here she comes and there and here everybody else comes behind her so don't make that silly mistake that's one that i really struggle with that i know better and for for whatever reason uh, I just cannot bring myself to not to, to get out of the truck and shut it behind me. I don't know what it's going to take, but um, anyhow, that uh, that's kind of a list that I've I've written down and kept track of. To you know, maybe may, there could be somebody out there that's also in the cow calf operation that says, you know what, I make those same mistakes too. Misery loves company in that way, you know. Or uh, you'll hear this and you don't make these mistakes, because uh, hopefully, you know, I'm trying to trying to make you aware of them uh, where you don't have to make them. But 
Anyhow, y'all, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. Uh, all you folks that that are consistent listeners to us really, really means a lot. Really, truly does. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. And uh, hope you all have a very, very happy, blessed 2024. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Grazing Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and come pay us a visit at Robertson Sheetham Farmers Co-op.